in the summer of 2017, two podcasters went on Skype to discuss a horror movie. Three months later, their footage was found. This is Pop Culture Affidavit Episode 80, The Blair Witch Podcast. I just want to apologize to Mike's mom and Josh's mom and my mom. I am so, so sorry because it is my fault because it was my project. I'm so scared. Hello. Hello. So am I. Yay. <laughs> We're excited for this. <laughs> uh, it's been a long week. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Uh, it's been that way for me too, sir. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I have not bought a single school supply. I refuse before August 1st. No, that's because you don't teach in the South, where they go back on August 4th. Yeah, my Brett, um, <clears throat> I'm actually starting at a new high school. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I I got... Um, it's, it's in the district where I live, so uh, Brett and I are on the same schedule now. So the first day of school for him is the 23rd. I go... I go back August eighth for a new te- like their quote new teacher since I'm new to the district mm-hmm. orientation. But yeah, I, I put in for the I had applied for the job and interviewed like late May, and I was driving to work the last day of the school year, like the last teacher work day, and uh, my wife was like texting me like crazy, and I couldn't pick up the phone. You know, and she even tried to call me, and I couldn't pick up the phone because there was a cop behind me. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm doing, like, 55 in the right lane. He finally went by me, and I pulled over, and I and I got this text. She's like, you know, so-and-so from Albemarle High School called. He wants you to call him back. So I pulled into the parking lot at work, and they offered me the job. And I said yes, and then I walked down to my principal's office, and I said, yeah, I just accepted the job <laughs> last day. <laughs> so... I'm excited though. I'm excited. Well, that's so, good. Yeah. I'm very happy for you. Thanks. It's I've been trying to get into this district for a few years now, so. Oh, I don't blame you. Yeah, and I mean, I'm that's just, just being I'm, closer to your kid is probably Yeah. Nicer and closer to work. Yeah, it's it's like a 10-minute drive. So, and I finished grad school in 2 weeks, so. <laughs> Look at you. Look at yeah. check out the big brain on top. I know, right? <laughs> So, I I uh, I had a lot of fun at lunch today watching that Blair Witch special that Sci-Fi did. Oh yeah, I actually have it on VHS because um, wow. when I bought when I bought the I have the it came with the movie like so there was a um, when the movie came out in uh, two thousand or something on video or actually it, it might have been like late ninety nine on on VHS. Um, I didn't have a DVD player yet, so I bought the VHS, and you could buy a two-tape set 
one tape is that special, the other tape is the movie. So I, I'll, uh, it's it's right in here. I'll I'll scan the cover too because the the cover is like, um, <laughs> discover the mythology of two centuries. See the only piece of evidence found. It's like really like titillating. Laying it on thick. Yeah, it's so I so I actually so in preparation for the show I actually watched both because the special was like forty five minutes or so. Yeah, it's, it was about it, that. I actually liked it. It was it, I forgot how well. This is something we'll talk about. I forgot yeah. how well they 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 played into this whole thing. By the way, I I I had I discovered that I I ha- still had a free rental at Redbox because of like some something some student gave me. Okay. And the red box near me had the third one, so oh, I rented okay. it and I watched it yesterday. It's, uh, it's it's total shit. <laughs> Don't okay. rent it. It is the best comparison I can make to it. And I was trying to think about this the other day. I'm like, you know, like what's how can I because it's basically like everything. Like take the Blair Witch Project and just put in everything that's been wrong about found footage movies since Paranormal Activity came out. Okay. Plus. Go, the filmmakers are obviously moving from the mentality of everybody who thought that original one was stupid because they never saw the monster. So basically, and they basically rehashed the entire film, but it's like 20 years later and it's like the brother of Heather Donahue, blah, 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 blah. And they add more supernatural elements to make it crazy and more effects and stuff. So basically what Blair Witch is to the Blair Witch Project is Highlander, the final dimension. Oh Jesus! Yeah, you remember how, like Highlander: The Final Dimension is essentially Highlander. almost a shot-for-shot shot remake yeah, of Highlander. That's what a lot of Blair Witch is. I mean, there's a point where they 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 come back. They, they were running through the woods and they come back around and oh, we thought we were walking in one direction, but here's the campsite we left. And there's a point where they're partying in a hotel room and one of them is drinking. I'm like watching this and it was, but then they add like you know glimpses of a weird elongated stick figure in the background like a a walking stick thing monster because oh that's the witch i'm like that was never the fucking point of the movie yeah at least it has the the gestalt of of being in like a a period movie at this point Mm -hmm. um i watched just depresses the shit out of me that that's our childhoods i know i know i watched two as well um, I I'm going to be saying some very nice things about the second one. I will okay. say this though, um, it's, it's I it, it it held up better than I thought it would. It is so of its time though. Yes, it like, is. It, it is, is very so much of its. I was like the music, the look, and everything. I'm like, oh my god, this is like a time capsule of like 2000, 2001. Because mm-hmm. it came out in I think what 01. Uh, either 0 or 01. It, yeah. it came out fairly quick i remember uh, and i'll mention this in the show i remember being kind of creeped out after seeing the film because the redhead in that was the daughter of the publisher of us magazine and us magazine did a profile on her right before the film came out uh because when your dad's the publisher you can do that and she is like naked throughout most of that film yeah and i'm like that's that's uncomfortable (laughs) This was, I guess, this must have been after Jan Wenner sold it, because he was the original publisher, but I'd have to look that up. 
I know she we... was she was related to somebody who was high up okay. in Us magazine. So, but I just I would be interesting. I was like Jan Winter's daughter, um, Jan Winter, who has like that brief one second cameo in Almost Famous. Um, so that's a movie I got to cover. It's um, a movie I have to see. I've never actually seen Almost Famous. It's actually really really good. That's um, what I hear. Yeah. Uh, by the way, before I just going back to Law and Order, and I think I've said this before. That is the new Kane Hackman theory. Like, I'm pretty sure that if you stayed up for 24 hours, you could find some variety of Law and Order on television. Oh, at yeah. all times. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> I, 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 I do not um, doubt that one little bit. <laughs> it's, it's almost comforting, too, because there's so much shit on television. Yes, there is. I get happy when I come across a Golden Girls reruns. <laughs> uh, then you need to get Logo, sir, because they. Oh, we have of... Logo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was about to say. Uh, so, all right. So I'll um, I'm gonna tape a uh, um, because I don't know what episode this is. So, because this isn't gonna come out until like the end of October. Okay, that's fine. But I'm just so I will, I will bring us in back from commercial, and I'll just record my intro and everything and then um i'm working off the outline i sent you i have a summary that um i can record on the while we're on the air here because it's actually not terribly long i'm good with that and uh but um but we're actually gonna do the um the lead up the marketing and everything before i do the summary because there was so much lead up to this yeah, movie yeah no you kind of have to talk about this film in that term in yeah terms. yeah so all right so i'll do the um so i'll bring also i'll bring us in and i'm just gonna leave a few seconds of silence so i can see where the break is on this on the okay. file so just give me about 10 seconds And we're back. Uh, so I have a special guest today to talk about the Blair Witch Project. And we're going to talk about the movie, its backstory, its marketing, its impact on popular culture, as well as at least one of its sequels, maybe both. Uh, and he has been on this show just about as many times as anybody else who has guested. Um, and uh so I would like to welcome back a uh, friend of the show and friend of mine, Michael Bailey. How you doing, man? I'd uh, I'd like to apologize to Heather's parents and to Michael's parents <laughs> and to Tom's parents. Because, no, no, I'm just, I, I can't hold it. Hey, thank you for having me back. We we have been talking about we have been talking about talking about this film for a couple years now. Yeah. So I'm really kind of excited that now we're getting to it because. This, this, I think, is one of those cultural touchstone movies. Yes. Uh, that I, I'm not saying like people who are in their 20s now can't appreciate it because they have their own versions of this. But I think for our generation, this, you know, it's not like Star Wars or something like that. But no. I think it's one of those things where if you were into it and you were paying attention and you were excited for it, this was not. The first Blair Witch Project was not just a movie; it was kind of an event. 
Mm-hmm. So I'm really happy that we're getting to talk about this. Yeah, and um, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna run on the usual stuff I do about like the box office and release and stuff, and then but we then we are actually gonna go back and talk for a little while about the lead up to mm-hmm. the movie being released because it um, and and what we remember about it because there there's a whole there's a whole like immersion that goes into that went into seeing this movie for the first time in the theater mm-hmm. that. I think enhanced and actually made me really, really like the movie in a way that a number of people did it because the movie was incredibly successful, but the, um, the, the feeling I get by just looking at, uh, various pages I was doing research is that it was very polarizing in terms of its reception. People either really, really liked it or they absolutely hated it. And, um, it actually won quote one, at least one, maybe two Razzie awards. Heather Donahue won a Razzie for this movie. That's that's unfair. It is unfair. That is completely unfair. Yeah. I mean, Cat. I mean, Halle Berry won a Razzie for Catwoman, and that shit was deserved. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, but just to just to give a, this is 1999. In 1999, I did a I did a, a episode about, I think about three years ago about 1999 mm-hmm. movies and. Because 1999 was an enormous year in movies, and this was the tenth highest grossing movie in 1999. It on a $60,000 budget, um, it made 145, sorry, 140.5 million dollars. It was the tenth highest grossing film of the year. I'm going to run down the other nine from nine to one, just just to give everybody perspective of what was in the theater in 1999. And most of these were summer, I think. One or two of these were uh, the spring and um, a, a winter release. So at number nine was Runaway Bride, the Julia Roberts, Richard Gere movie at $152 million. The Mummy with Brendan Fraser, $155. Big Daddy. Big Daddy with Adam Sandler made $163 million in 1999. There's nothing surprising about that number. Uh, Give it. Yeah, given the, Adam Sandler at that time, there's nothing surprising about sure, that. I, I want to say, I think his next movie was Little Nicky, and that's when things sort of. Yeah, that's when it started going bad yeah, for him. Yeah. Um, in fact, I want to say Big Daddy's probably the last Adam Sandler movie I ever really saw. Um, Tarzan, the Disney car- animated Tarzan movie, uh, was next with 171 million dollars. Uh, the the big surprise hit of the spring, The Matrix was uh number five was number five at with 171.4 million dollars and that was a movie that um i don't i think people expected it to do well but honestly like i wasn't like the college bubble at the time so i don't know if there was any hype all i saw were the keanu reeves commercials and all of which ended with whoa and so, like, this is going to be dumb. <laughs> as as one of uh, of our generation that dropped out of college, and I was working at the time for Delta Airlines, uh, the excitement for that film among my peer group was pretty high. Okay. And then we actually went and saw it, and it was just like it had something for everybody that was in the theater. That movie blew me away in a way I didn't expect it to. Um, and then uh, at number uh, four 
Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, which actually ties into how I found out about this movie, because that's where I saw the trailer for The Blair Witch Project. Um, that Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, made $206 million. Toy Story 2, which I think came out toward the end of the year, if I'm not mistaken, was at number three, with $245.8 million. This is, uh, this is according to Box Office Mojo, by the way. Uh, the Sixth Sense, which came out, I think, about a week or two after The Blair Witch Project. In fact, I remember um, the commercials for The Sixth Sense were airing around the time The Blair Witch Project came out. That made $293.5 million. The number one grossing film of 1999, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. I was about to joke and say Enemy of the State. No. That came out, that came out in 98, but it was just... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, $431 million. By the way, episode one is still, according to Box Office Mojo, domestic box office gross, still the 10th highest grossing film of all time. doesn't surprise me. The You know, you mentioned that this was a big year for films. Mm -hmm. And it's really, it happens every once in a while. Like, you, you have, like, the summer of 1989. Yeah. Uh, where, you know, let's take Batman out of the equation, which you really can't, but, you know, for the sake of, of conversation, you take Batman out of the equation, you still have Ghostbusters 2, Star Trek 5, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Dead Poet Society. Ghostbusters 2. Ghostbusters 2. I mean, just like all these huge hit after yeah. hit after hit. Yeah. And then, you know, you have a couple summers where it isn't all that, uh, exciting, you know, like especially like '96, '97 yeah. didn't seem to be. We we were, I, I think, in '99 we were we were primed as a movie going public for something to come along and blow us away. Yeah, because '96's um, biggest film was Independence Day, and I don't and, remember and, what '97's was. And that was exciting, but it was pretty much the only big, you know. Yeah. Outside of like going to see The Rock, and and mm -hmm. a couple other and, and like uh, you know Mission Impossible came out in '96, and you know you you had big films, but it seemed like we got into this malaise of these Bruckheimer Simpson action films, yeah, or disaster movies, or disaster movies, where by 1998, you know, like '97, you had Titanic, but Titanic was an aberration. I, I, I honestly believe Titanic. This is the thing about Titanic and, and all deference to Scott Gardner, because I know he is a Titanic fanatic and he does like the movie. Titanic was going to be Waterworld all over again. This mm -hmm. was like they were setting this movie. The movie was delayed. It went hugely over budget. It looked good in the trailers, but they were they were honestly waiting for it to live up to its title. And then it. It, well, it did what it did. Yeah, Jeff Loeb on a interview with Kevin Smith on Fat Man on Batman was talking about he had he had done a uh, action film with Howie Long uh, called Firestorm. Firestorm. <laughs> and I've seen that. <laughs> it was it was primed to be like a huge film because Howie Long had been dipping his toes into film. He was in Broken Arrow. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it, it was it was primed to be like this big film, and according to Jeff Loeb, the studio came to him and said, you know, we're glad we have the, essentially that we're glad this movie's here because we're making a film right now that is going to bankrupt the studio. 
And then the first week, Titanic does huge numbers. And what was different about Titanic compared to other films is that it kept doing big numbers week after week after week. And they basically told uh, uh, movie theaters were like, take Firestorm back, send us more prints of Titanic. Yeah. So it, it, it's kind of funny that it was, you know, it, but it was, it, that was, that was a movie that came along. And I think it's, it's the exception that proves the rule that there wasn't a whole lot going on. And I know people are listening to this right now and they have favorite films from like 95, 96, 97 and 98. But I remember in March of 1999, Sitting with my friends at this park, we were we were having uh, there was this this uh, basically poetry reading club, mm-hmm. and we all we used to meet at a, a coffee shop because you know nineties, um, and that coffee shop closed down, so we started meeting at uh, McCurry Park here in Fayetteville, and I remember sitting around and we were we were all sitting you know just talking. It's like, hey, the Matrix came out today. And we had, me and my friend Eric had just been having this conversation that films were boring and we need something to come along. And not only, and like you said, we have Matrix, you have uh, the, the cultural significance of episode one, the problems with that film notwithstanding, that was gigantic. I'm sorry. You know, if you are right now a person who was alive in 1999 and a teenager or in your early 20s or you know late later 20s and you're like well it's you know i knew it was going to suck from the beginning you are effing lying no i, <laughs> I saw it three times so did i yeah that opening weekend i saw it like three yeah, times i saw it and and i'm not gonna i'm not an apologist for all the star wars prequels they are certainly flawed films Mm-hmm. And I think the Phantom Menace is the most flawed of all of them. Oh yeah, but it's not unwatchable. No, it's it's not unwatchable, and it showed us things, or showed me things in the Star Wars universe that I had never seen before. We got to see Jedi's flipping around and fighting, you know, and and yeah. there and and I saw it opening day at eleven o'clock in the morning. There was like five people in the theater. Uh, which was really funny because of the five people it was me, my friend Andy, and three other people. When Palpatine at the end of that movie goes, "I'm going to be watching. We expect great things from you." Me, Andy, and another dude laughed, and that's how I knew the people that were aware of who that character was and what ultimately he was going to become. And you know, it just didn't stop. And, and it's kind of funny. Uh, Blair Witch was just this thing that, and, and, and you are about to go into it a little more detail. Yes. It's one of those things that kind of came out of nowhere, but it didn't. Yeah. That's the weird thing about this movie. Yeah, so it was, um, and I have to look up the, I'm going to vamp for a second, because i, I got to look up the name of the directors, because <laughs> I can't remember them off the top of my head. Uh that's okay. That's I want to see the ad for Spider-Man: Homecoming. Uh, Why not? The flick looks pretty good. I'm gonna I'm gonna wait on the video for that one. Oh, uh, the next time you watch an ad for that, and it's it's been in uh, this shot's been in all the commercials. It's a shot of the vulture descending down from like it's, it's it looks like this giant building, and there's different floors, and he's flying straight down. Uh huh. 
That is the Marriott Marquis in Atlanta. That's one of the host hotels for Dragon, Dragon Con. Con. I see that every year. <laughs> so um, the directors and writers, for the most part, of, of the Blair Witch Project are Daniel... I guess I'm going to say Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez. And uh, they had put together uh, this movie that was uh, mostly really improvised. It's, it's the, the unique thing about this is that, you know, we have found footage. The found footage is a genre. Um, this is one of the original films. There's a couple of other films that there was one that came out about a year before it. That was just kind of this very small cult film called like the last broadcast or something that, it was just about a year before the Blair Witch and really didn't, it got a little more attention because of Blair Witch, but found footage would sort of be there for a little while. And then when paranormal activity came out about, was that 10, 11 years ago now, maybe mm-hmm. a little bit sooner than that. Um, when paranormal activity came out, then that genre particularly exploded. But I think, I think that owes itself more to be that more to the fact that, Paranormal Activity it may have been a breath of fresh air because up until that point, a lot of horror movies were of that sort of torture porn variety that like saw oh. and torture. So like I think people were just getting tired of that. So was the next thing to come along. But a lot if you watch a found footage horror movie, and I've seen a couple uh, since then, a lot of them are so deliberately staged. Yeah, like. like so deliberately staged, you know, like they're quote improvised in some way or another, but they are they are very very set up, and it's almost like you you can see through the veneer of this of like you know this almost looks like a actual Hollywood production, and it's not just because the camera resolution is better than a camcorder from nineteen ninety you know four, um, but that it has three main actors, and they essentially improvised the entire thing they were just basically given places to go in the woods and they were given situations to act out and that's what they had cast they were they were looking for people who could improv um and it was uh you know there was they had like an an outline it was almost i have to say it was almost like a christopher guest piece yeah it's like if christopher guest decided to do a horror film exactly and just just replace uh heather donahue with parker posey Mm mm-hmm and hmm, who would be Michael? Let's see. I don't know. Fred Willard would clearly be one of the people in Burkittsville. Oh yeah, he'd be, <laughs> he'd, he'd be like one of the one of, either one of the fishermen or he'd be the guy that they kind of drag out of the the, the convenience store. And, and all I'm that. like, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> what happened? <laughs> uh, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, and, and um. So the movie was made in, in like, late 98 or so and uh, started making the rounds at, like, Sundance, etc. And it got all this buzz. And actually what they started doing was they, they marketed it as a documentary. And yes. they, at very, at the, at the even, even up until a couple of months before their release, the IMDb profiles for Heather Donahue, Mike Williams, and Josh Leonard says listed as missing. Mm-hmm. And what they would do at Sundance, they were placing um, missing persons posters with the three actors' names around Sundance as a way to advertise this film. So, like, right from the get-go, um, right around the time it got picked up by uh, by Artisan, which was like a fledgling studio, 
um, an artisan, and then it's now the the um, the the all the artisan films are now actually owned by Lionsgate, and and this was just a little bit of a tangent here. It's interesting how companies like art company like Artisan and Lionsgate seems to make a lot of money off the fact that they were able to pur- to purchase the video or movie libraries of defunct studios. Yeah. Like Artisan for a while had Dirty Dancing because Vestron went out of business eons ago. And yeah. I think Lionsgate now actually has everything Artisan had. So some of these some of these smaller studios from the late nineties and into the early two thousands were, were were kind of shoring up their bottom line by just having the rights to movies by studios that like Orion or something that had gone out of business and so and they were the they were the ones releasing the DVDs. Yeah, yeah. Back when DVDs were new. Yeah. So artisan, this, but this was artisan's like biggest hit, their first hit. This was when anybody had released. And Haxon Films was the name of the production company, and uh, they picked it up. And honestly, um, they were advertising it as a documentary, and the conceit was that this was the footage found in 1995 of a movie that had been was being worked on back in 1994. Um, and uh, I first heard about it when I went, I was up in Boston for a long weekend visiting my friend Harris. And we had, he was, um, we had gone, you know, we'd gone downtown, we'd gone to a, gone to a comic store as you do. And uh, we went to see uh, two movies together. We went to see, we went to see Star Wars because um, we were going to see Star Wars, and then we went to see Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, because I think that was the weekend it came out. And, you know, there were the usual whatever Deep Blue Sea or whatever was coming out later that later that summer, but there was this this um, this trailer, and it, it said in, in 1994, three student filmmakers disappeared in the woods in Burkersville, Maryland, while shooting a documentary. A year later, their footage was found, and you saw, like, a shot of... Heather running through the woods. I think I, I'd have to. I have to go look and see if if the if her if her snot nosed apolo, snotty apology. Yes. Or snot laden apology. It wasn't snotty. The 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 crying apology was in the original teaser. If it was just them running through the woods, and it was the Blair Witch Project, and it was the entire teaser. And I was like, ooh, what is this? And so, if you saw that, I saw that, and I went online. And the site was like these people are missing, and from like right off the bat, you didn't know it was fiction. Yeah, I, I kind of had a, a similar uh, experience with it. My friend Ryan, uh, one of my best friends from around the, the from the late '90s, uh, and I had just gotten a place together uh, as roommates, and. Ryan has always been, since he got online in like 1998, uh, 97-98, when he he bought his first, you know, like computer, uh, and I'm sure there's segments of the audience, it's just like, what do you mean got online? Um, (laughs) It's always been there, right? Uh, But Ryan... Ryan, from the very beginning, was very savvy and always really good about finding stuff. And we, I was sitting there on uh, the one of our pieces of furniture in the in the main room, watching television with my friend Andy. 
And he goes, guys, come in here and look at this. So we go in, and I don't remember what it was, but I just remember that there was stuff on the internet about a movie. And this was before viral marketing on the internet was even, even had a name. Yeah, this is like the first viral marketing and piece. And th- there was a very brief discussion like, is this real? And my friend Andy's like, oh, I remember reading about this. No, this isn't real at all. This is this is a found footage movie, like Cannibal Holocaust. And I'm like, what's Cannibal Holocaust? He goes, well, let's watch it. Boy, was that a mistake. <laughs> there are people that love Cannibal Holocaust as a film. It was the most vile film I had ever seen up until that point. I, I felt less sick at Meet the Feebles than I did at... Cannibal Holocaust. There was stuff going on in that film that I felt was just there to shock me, and I wasn't having it. <laughs> so, but but it was one of those things where we were all really excited for it. So it just just so just the fact that there was this viral marketing and there was a special on sci-fi that we'll be probably talking about a little deeper yeah. uh, as we get into it. And there was just all this stuff. So in like this year where movies were gigantic, it's kind of funny that this $60,000 film was one of the things that captured our imaginations yeah. for a couple of months. Yeah, and it the, the movie came out in late July. Um, I had seen that trailer in June, so there's a for me there's about a month lead up to this, and um, I didn't have the internet at my house, so I was at Amanda's. Um, I was back and I was back and forth between Long Island and Virginia that entire summer because I was moving to Arlington in the fall anyway. So I would stay at Amanda's and we'd go apartment hunting, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I remember her parents had America Online. And I remember we we went on the webpage and we were like, you know, there was um, a lot of the background on this legend of the Blair Witch. And we had known for at least a year or two what an urban legend was, partially because there was an entire movie called Urban Legend starring uh, Noxzema Girl and a number of other people. And And Alicia Witt. And Alicia Witt. And Michael Rosenbaum. That's right. That's right. We saw that in the theater. Yep. Um, so did we. Yeah. I loved that film, actually. I really liked it. It was actually... It's. It, I think it's an underrated film. I, the, the ending's a little little cheesy with, you know, when she finally kind of goes over the edge, but uh, the whole... The, the lead-up to a lot of it, it was much better than, like, Final Destination, which I, I thought was... Had a few good moments, but for the most part was crap. But... Um, but we had heard, you know, we, we'd, we'd heard our share, fair share of urban legends by then anyway. And that goes back to uh, one of my favorite horror movies of all time from 1990. It was like 94, 95, which was Candyman. Um, I love Candyman. It's, which might have been earlier than 95. I don't want to see like It was because I remember seeing it uh, on HBO when I was yeah. a teenager. So that would have been before 94 because yeah, I was, graduated from high school. I remember watching it. I say 95 because I remember watching it at some point in 95 with a couple of friends and my girlfriend and stuff. Um, but I knew like where Urban Legend was from that because that's what Virginia Madsen's character is investigating in Candyman. So like, so this idea of a legend of a woman haunting woods and stuff like that, and and I have to give it to them. Um, 
they crafted a legend that is very realistic. There's nothing out of the ordinary about the whole Blair Witch legend. It could very well be a real story that people would tell their kids because the circumstances are that um, it was this woman who was essentially hunted I think her name was Ellie Kedward and she was essentially hunted like in a way like something out of the Salem Witch Trials and then every the, uh, a couple kids she had pricked their fingers mm-hmm. uh, one of the things in the Sci-Fi Channel special uh, that I that I was uh, that I watched earlier today just to kind of prepare for this that I was kind of fascinated is that she was apparently a Catholic living in a town full of Protestants, which in colonial America wasn't, you know, was a thing that would yeah. cause concern. She was pricking children's fingers, I think ostensibly to find out if there was something wrong with them. They went and told their parents, their parents went, which, and they brought her out of the middle of the woods, tied her to the tree. It's the middle of winter. And she, you know, she was never quote unquote, never heard from again. Yeah. And, and then there are a few instances, which we'll get into later, especially in my summary of suspicious disappearances, murders, etc., over the course of the next few hundred years. Mm-hmm. And that's enough time. Murders are not for this legend to grow. And, uh, and, and I have to, like I said, I have to give them credit because they, they, I think they used a few existing legends as basis for that, like the Bell Witch of Tennessee and things like that. Um, but they do it in a way that seems very organic uh, and is not related in any way to any of the characters. If the you li- if you like ghost stories and things like that, mm-hmm. you're gonna you're gonna buy into the mythology they're building for this world. Yes. So there's there there were a num there were a few things that the website was one of them the online marketing was one of them and and it is it is landmark in that regard because it was heavily marketed online in a way that movies at that time were not and it really it it went viral before the term going viral mm-hmm. existed I mean that that's really what happened um, but there are three things that I want to talk about specifically. Going into before we actually go into the movie itself, uh, you've already brought up one of them, which is that the Sci-Fi Channel, back when it was SCIFI and it actually showed science fiction, aired a fake. It aired a fake documentary about the Blair Witch. So it aired, but not like, but almost like on the on the level of like a haunting in America or, or one of those like cheesy ass history channel specials or something where they would interview people and they would play scary music and. This sort of and you would have a narrator that yeah. sounded a little like this. Exactly. And they, they, they did it, and they did it very straight, too. It was, you know, like, nowadays, knowing this is all fiction and stuff, I, I admire them for just playing the entire thing straight for what it was, never putting their tongue in their cheek, never winking at the camera. Um, you had, there was a book published, which I did have at one point. It was called The Blair Witch Project, a dossier, which was more of the same thing. It was more of, um, it was entries from Heather Donahue's journal, um, where she was, as a background, she was, before going into the woods, she was doing her best to research as much as she could into both the Blair Witch and 
witchcraft and she so she was like you know one of my favorite things was she said she watched some movie that somebody recommended because it was quote about witches and she said like all it was was witch tits and and it just it was just but it was like you know yeah just one of those like russ meyer type of horror films probably you know where it's basically an excuse for a bunch of women to get naked on screen um and and there were uh the, there were interjections from like experts quote unquote and, and and stuff and some pictures from the movie so so it built in a legend and then um oni press which was a fledgling comic book company at the time who i had first seen because they published kevin smith's clerks comic books yeah that's where bob shrick came from mm-hmm who would eventually uh, become a big thing at uh, DC Comics. Yeah, and uh, but this is when, like, Oni was like... Oni really found its feet because of Kevin Smith at first, and then because of this, because they, they published a one-shot, and then they did a miniseries. Mm-hmm. Uh, based where, where they... What they did was, instead of adapting the film, they adapted the legends behind the film. So they they told the stories, and some stories of, of Blair and the witch... Um, through the 1800s, the early 1900s, or whatever, like you know these these older stories that sort of, as sort of a lead in. So you really could immerse yourself in this legend of the Blair Witch before the movie even came out. Uh, did you have the book or the comics? What was your? Uh, I did not have the book. Uh, I remember watching the Sci-Fi Channel special shortly before the film, and then I watched it again today. And the one thing about that special that I loved is that the best form of satire is something that does what it's satirizing better than an example of it being done straight. Mm -hmm. And there is, they have the usual collection of stuffy kind of mustachioed experts. Uh, You have the old kook who tells stories and, and, Rachel, when we for when Rachel and I first started dating and we kind of moved in together, I watched the crap out of History Channel stuff on ghosts and mysterious stuff. And mm-hmm. this is this is where you saw Mike Rowe before he was a man of the people, where yeah. he was just hosting <laughs> crap. Um, but there is a film that they show, a quote unquote film, that they show clips from, that is done dead on as a documentary done in the early 70s is this the one with the hippie guy yeah (laughs) and it's 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 perfect it is it is and and you know basically through this they 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 go through the legend of it and they have like mock uh newsreel footage and stuff Mm -hmm. like that and mock photos the comics i did not get at the time but about a year after the movie came out, I was at one of the comic shops in the area, and Dave's, which is still open, just in a new location, and he does this to this day, he will keep, like, eight months' worth of comics on the sh- on a shelf. Yeah. Um, Shag will tell you that that's bad, uh, and if you've never listened to him and Professor uh, Quarterbin talking about the mechanics of a comic shop, uh, you really need to track that down. No, I have. It's a good episode. But I, but I got the, the one shot and the four issues just off the shelf, and I mm. really liked them. Yeah. Uh, one of them was written, one of the stories was written by Jen Van Meter, mm-hmm. 
Um, and I'm going to say this not to say that this is the only thing she's known for because she is a writer in her own right, but she's married to Greg Rucka. Um, so it was kind of neat to see some of her early stuff. And it's kind of funny because he kind of broke big in comics with Whiteout from Oni Press. Yeah, which I think came around right around the same time. I remember seeing ads for that and maybe Queen and Country around the yeah, same time. Yeah, Queen and time. Country other thing. Because Queen yeah. Country spun out of Whiteout. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's just, it's it was this, the comics, and unfortunately they're in a place that I am, that are inaccessible to me right now. So yeah, I can't get, uh, I really wanted to, but the logistics of me doing that and my life right now, uh, they 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 couldn't even go get coffee together much less. <laughs> uh, but it's just it's like one of those things where comic book tie-ins can be crap. Yes, uh, absolute crap. And I think more, you know, and nothing against the people that work on them nowadays, uh, because you know if you can get if you can get work, more power to you. You know. Oh yeah. I'm really glad, but it's just. More often than not, they they tie in, but it's not real interesting. Where these just furthered the mythology of the Blair Witch and and Ellie and the whole thing. And I'm a sucker for that kind of thing. Yeah, they had. Um, there was one that vividly illustrated the murder at Coffin Rock. Yeah, with the group that was disemboweled and they were all tied together in a pentagram, and it was implied that the that like a little girl was. I'm trying to remember this off the top of my head. It's been a number of years. A little girl was like possessed by the witch, and she's the one who did it. And then um, there's another one that was uh, this family. And I remember just a sequence of, I don't know what they had done to piss off the witch, but I, I remember there was this sequence of them repeatedly going to the general store and they were getting poorer and poorer and more destitute and destitute and sicker and sicker and sicker. And it implied like there was that, that was the curse working itself out and, and stuff like that. And you're right. It just, it, it just added to it without being like prequely. Yeah. You know, because like, and I think that's what was important in that nothing of the Blair Witch legend had anything to do with Heather Donahue, Mike Williams, or Josh Leonard. Nothing of it. And that's really, really important for this movie to work. Because you'll get horror movies like this, and all of a sudden, like halfway through the movie, it's like, you know, oh, she this was is... the cousin of... Yeah, exactly. And all of a sudden, there's a whole reason. It's like, no, they just it's a spirit, <laughs> you know, it's, they're, they're at the wrong place at the wrong time doing something they shouldn't. And, and I think that's what makes this work. And I think that's what makes it scary too. Yeah. I, I, I like the randomness of it. I mean, if you, you know, there, there are times where you can, um, where you, here's a good example. Um, the first two dates that my wife and I went on, is kind of the alpha and the omega of how to do a horror film in 1999, where one was really good and the other was just an abominable piece of crap. Our first date, we went to see the remake of The Haunting. Okay. With Liam Neeson. Yes, and, okay. and And Owen Wilson was in it being all Owen Wilson-y. And <laughs> Catherine Zeta-Jones and uh, Joe Charlie, Live was in it. Yeah. Let's work it out. <laughs> Which is funny because both of them ended up in high fidelity. That's yeah. kind of interesting. Um, and at the end of the film, 
if I'm remembering the film correctly, which really the the main thing I remember about that film is that I kissed my wife during it. Um, but the, the the main thing I remember is that somehow the people that owned the house they were in were somehow tied uh. to what's her name's character. Okay. And it was just like this bullshit revelation. Now, I could be wrong about that and mixing it up with another film, but you're absolutely right. There's horror films where you seemingly have this random, usually female character, and halfway through it's like, no, you don't understand. You were adopted, and this is your real family, and now you have to embrace it. No, these were just three kids that went into the woods and pissed off the wrong spirit. Yeah. And what's interesting, and I think the reason that they didn't try a lot more with these after this, I want to say it's because of The Sixth Sense, because The Sixth Sense came out about a week or two after this, and like I said, that was the second highest grossing movie of the year. So you have the M. Night Shyamalan ghost movie with a twist at the end of it, and and another movie that would come out of it a year or two later, which was also amazing and I really, really loved, but had a twist ending to it, was The Others with Nicole Kidman. Which I think did it better than The Sixth Sense. Yes. And uh, full credit to my wife, she figured out the, the, the thing and the others before it was revealed in the in the movie itself. Hmm. Uh, which I actually thought was really I was I was like really proud of her. I'm like, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> so but but the Blair Witch Project really it really, really relies on um, suspension of disbelief. Mm-hmm. But then, then again, there's nothing to take you out of the movie. Now, in did that you, way, did you see it when it went wide, or did you see it when it had the limited release first? I saw it in a theater in Fredericksburg at the end of July, so I it may have already been in wide release, but I had heard nothing. I had heard nothing about it outside of just seeing the trailers and reading what I had and seeing the sci-fi show. Okay, because... So I hadn't talked... I was... Among my friends, I was the first one to see it. So I was going in... I was going in completely like... I knew it was fake. You know, I knew it was fiction. But I was going in like... With that willing suspension of disbelief. Well, because I saw it in the... I saw it twice in the theaters. Mm-hmm. And the second time was the... Uh, good horror film that Rachel and I on our second date <laughs> went to see this, but that by that point it had been wide release, but it was a good example for me of how an audience can affect the movie. Uh-huh. And I'm not even talking about the quality of the film or anything like that. There is a, in Atlanta, which I'm about 30 minutes from, there are a number of independent movie houses. Okay. Uh, one of them, uh, believe it's called the Terra shocking in Atlanta. Um, and it's off of, it's off of Cheshire bridge road. I call Cheshire bridge road, Sodom and Gomorrah Avenue because outside at one point it had one of the chain store, one of the chain comic stores in the area Titans. It had a Titans location and it had the science fiction fantasy uh, uh, mystery bookstore, which was this great bookstore, but everything else, if it wasn't a chain restaurant, it was a strip club. It was a something called the Poster Hut, where you go and buy porn. There was the Chamber, which was a 
alternative club where they had like bondage night and stuff like that. So I like that place in seven. Yeah. So you, but it also had this movie theater that showed pretty much exclusively independent films. It's where I saw David Cronenberg's crash. Uh It's where I saw Fargo and my friend Ryan, Andy and Eric all hopped into Ryan's car and we drove into Atlanta and we thought we got there. This is when it was in limited release. We thought we got there in plenty of time. We walk up and like, we have to wait around for two showings to see this film. Oh, wow. Because it was just sold out, sold out, sold out. So we end up hanging out in the parking lot for like three hours almost. It seemed. And we ran into somebody we knew from the Waffle House, and we had this great conversation. We finally get into the theater, and this movie theater is packed. There isn't an empty seat in this in this in this theater, right? Mm-hmm. And something happened that has never really happened to me before or since in seeing a film. But it was a packed movie, and no one said anything. From the time the movie started to the end credits, even there was no even murmurs of conversation after the movie was over. We all just left. And I freaked my friend Eric out because he was the one sitting next to me because we couldn't all sit next to each other because it was just that crowded. And I freaked him out with how tense I was. And it was just this amazing experience. Cut to three weeks later... Rachel and I go to see this in the middle of the afternoon on a Wednesday or a Tuesday. And there's like 10 other people in the film. One of them is douche bro and his three female friends. And they're just, he's just making comments the entire time. I'm trying to enjoy the film and it's just like, wow, an audience can make or break this experience. (laughs) I'm, I'm trying to remember when I saw it because I'm trying to remember. I was up and down for, between Virginia, and I saw it with Amanda, and we saw it down in Virginia. Her parents are in Stafford, but we had been we had been um, we had been I, I had been down there for her birthday, and we had been house sitting for about a week for a friend of ours. And I remember we went and saw American Pie, and Eyes Wide Shut. We may have gone I'm and so seen sorry. it. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, Eyes Wide Shut was... A, I have it on DVD because I have the Kubrick box set, but um, and I haven't watched it since 1999. But um, yeah, we might have seen it in wide release, but I had a similar experience where, like... It, it, I just... I, I guess we'll get into a little more detail here because I'm going to get to the summary in a second, but I just remember having that tense sort of, like... <laughs> I closed my eyes and saw the last frame of the movie. Mm-hmm. walking out of the theater in the fucking dark at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, you know, just terrified, terrified out of my mind. And, um, but we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a minute. So, um, so yeah, so we've got the sci-fi channel special, which, um, the only other thing I wanted to note was like, I, I really did appreciate their commitment to certain bits. Like when they would show, they talked about what they found and they show the forensics table with all the film canisters and stuff. I'm, yeah. like, I'm like, you like, it's just like looking back at that the other day when I was watching, I'm like, wow, you committed. And I'm like, I, I have to, I have to give them credit for that because it looked authentic in a way that like, you know, it didn't look, it, it didn't look fake. It didn't look cheesy fake. 
Okay, you know, it looked authentic, but it looked authentic in that alien autopsy kind of yeah, thing. But but that's exactly where they were going for, and that's why I thought it was you know, you know how they'll they'll exaggerate things just because they're trying to get the sensational things across. Nowadays, this would be a dark five list or something like that. Yeah, I, I'm always watching those because they're always fun to watch. <laughs> So, but I'm going to get into the summary of the film just really, really briefly so that people know, like, if they haven't seen it, um, what happens in it. So, like I, like I said earlier, uh, the same opening title for the film was used in the trailers and the opening uh, was used in the trailers and the opening uh, on the opening of the film. You have um, in October 1994, three student filmmakers disappeared in the woods near Burkittsville, Maryland, while shooting a documentary. A year later, their footage was found. And uh, we meet those three Montgomery College students who we did meet in the first uh, – in, in, if you if you paid attention to The Curse of the Blair Witch, they do introduce all three of them. They, inter- they interview some of their relatives and girlfriends and stuff. But they are Heather Donahue, Joshua Leonard, and Michael Williams, and they are playing themselves, basically. They did not give them character names. Uh, Heather is the head of the project. She's the director. She's the narrator. This really is her idea, and it is a project for um, – the class, the film department at Montgomery College, which is a local college that they're attending. Um, Josh and Mike are serving as her crew, and this is something that I really appreciated. Um, they have two, they have three main pieces of equipment. They have a '90s era camcorder, the one that mm-hmm. took the mini tapes. They have a larger uh, camera that I want to say was either shooting high def for the time high quality video or it was shooting uh it might have been shooting film but i think it was high quality video and a dat tape um uh backpack type of thing for sound which i think josh had checked out of the montgomery college film department so just kind of the, again buying into the idea of like okay how did they get their hands on this piece of equipment and they're like well we checked it out in fact that later on in the movie they talk about well i got to get the camera back tomorrow morning like you know because they kind of took the camera without permission yeah they kind of yeah they, they quote checked it out you know so the documentary that they're shooting is about this urban legend called the blair witch uh the supposed ghost of a, of ellie kedward who haunts the woods of the black hills outside of burkersville maryland which was established near the former colonial village of blair they head to Burkittsville, they spend the night at a hotel, they get ready to hike and camp overnight in the woods. And they're basically supposed to be spending a weekend in the woods. It's not supposed to be a lengthy project. They're going to go, they're going to shoot footage, and then they're going to leave. Um, before heading there, the three interview a few people in and around Burkittsville. They've got uh, a woman with her kid, you've got a couple of the locals who are a little older, a little younger, you have this really creepy woman in a trailer named Mary Brown who's kind of not all there. Um, and then they get and they get all of these people's thoughts on the legends surrounding the witch, and they further flesh out a little bit of those legends' details. Uh, two specific t- stories are told. Uh, Coffin Rock, where five men were ritualistically killed and tied together in a pentagram shape. And Rustin Parr, who in the, I want to say it was the 40s, had murdered several children. And what he would do is he would make one of them stand in the corner and face the wall while he killed the other one. And uh, that is going to be important later in the movie. Um, Or as Andy Lynn would say, pay attention, this is important. Um, 
or this will be important. <laughs> the three filmmakers head into the woods. They reach Coffin Rock. Heather shoots some footage, and then they explore some more. Soon after, they get lost. As they try to find their way, they come across a cemetery where there's only these piles of rocks around there. The arguments arguments between the three of them over the fact that they're being lost, this is where they really do start to begin. They, they, they then hear noises outside of their tent at night the map goes missing as time wears on and i'm condensing the whole plot of the movie here uh their arguments intensify especially when mike laughs about how he threw the map into the stream also things get weird like weirder aside from weird noises outside because you're in the middle of the woods and your weird noise is going to happen at one point josh's stuff is rifled through it gets slime on it they find rock piles like the one at the cemetery at their campsite they come across a clearing full of stick figures that symbolize the blair witch and features my favorite line in the movie no redneck is this creative uh and walk and they walk in one direction for an entire day and then inexplicably have gone in a circle so they yeah. follow their compass south for the entire day, and they come across a log they crossed on a creek, and they realize it's the same log. They're back where they started, and they all flip out on one another. They, they don't know what the hell's going on. Then, as we get closer and closer to the end of the film, Josh disappears after one night. And they wake up, and he's gone. Uh, they look for him. They keep trying to find their way out of the woods. They have to spend another night there, and, and that night they hear him screaming off in the distance. They even run around trying to find him, they can't find him. When they wake up the next day, Heather finds a bundle of sticks that's tied together with, with what is basically a piece of his flannel shirt. He, she opens it. She finds bloody teeth and what I think we're supposed to assume is part of his tongue. And we we're supposed to think it's Josh's. And then she goes like all Lady Macbeth and tries to wash it off her hands in the creek. Um, the next night begins with what is probably the most famous scene in the film. And this is where I'm going to drop in Heather's apology. And then we head toward the film's climax where Mike and Heather come upon a house just out of nowhere in the middle of the woods. And they head inside because they think they hear Josh screaming. Really, Mike heads inside and then Heather basically has to follow him. In fact, at one point she's like, will you wait up for me? Because he's like, he hears him. As they go through the house, there are small handprints all over the walls as well as what look like um runic carvings of various uh you know from the runic alphabet and stuff and uh mike and Heather do eventually get separated mike who's holding the 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 camcorder so it's in color uh finds his way into the basement and he's attacked by something and that camera goes dead and then heather follows and she ends up being attacked at the end of the movie as well and before she's attacked and the camera's knocked to the ground. The last shot of the movie is Mike standing in the in the corner of the basement, facing the wall. And that went to black in the theater. And I was both of us, and, and both of us, and 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 my wife, my wife and I are not two people who get scared by horror movies and very often we'll go to movies that people are like oh this is incredible and we're like whatever this sucks we're like did not want to <laughs> like we were we were like let's get to the car <laughs> we're getting to the car now <laughs> terrified trembling terrified and i will say the other thing and i think this is what got for me too have you ever been lost like somewhere and like oh. lost for long enough where you actually start to panic or something bad is happening where you start to panic a little bit. Uh, 
there have been times where trying to get out of particular areas or just trying to find, you know, getting back to the interstate or getting back on Mm -hmm. a road that's familiar. Just, you know, I've never been like, you know, the Griswolds, you know, going into (laughs) into the inner city, you know, like, roll them up, kids. But, But, yeah, I I think I know what you're talking about. The sort of feeling of anxiety you get because you Mm -hmm. don't – well, at one point during the – we're lost in the woods sequences before any of the weird stuff really starts to happen. That feeling got a hold of me and was there through basically the last hour of the film. And it built up to that climax. So basically they got me, they got me really well. Yeah. (laughs) That was my reaction to the movie. The reason why I think this film doesn't deserve to win a Razzie is the very beginning, and, and I was thinking about this today, about why I responded so well to the characters in this film. And I think it's because they were, in 1994, two or, one or two years older than I was at that time. Mm-hmm. So I knew these people. I didn't know them specifically, but you knew the type A personality that Heather was. Oh, yeah. Uh, who was always right. You could never argue with her. Mm-hmm. And she was, you know, the head, and she was going to let you know that. You knew a guy like Josh, who was kind of a slacker, but had some talent. And you knew guys like Mike that were just there. Mike's, a, and he's a bit of a goofball, too. Yeah. So, you know, they, they all meet up, they all go shopping, they all spend the night together in a hotel room, which uh, CinemaSins had a lot of fun with, of them, <laughs> whether or not they did anything with that. But, um, and they get into the woods, and I, I grew up in, just outside of Allentown, Pennsylvania, my Aunt Jenny lives in Skaggsville, Maryland. Uh, which is right next to Laurel. Uh, and I'm just really funny. I'm still amused at the Skaggsville. <laughs> um, and, you know, so with what Maryland looks like, at least in the D.C. area. Mm-hmm. So Burkittsville felt like a really real place to me. Like I had been there. It's yeah. right down the street from where I grew up almost. I think what sells this movie is that there's enough time lulling you into some security that when shit goes down, it's really scary. Yeah. And here's the other thing that, um, that I really appreciate about the Burkittsville sequences. It's not deliverance. Cause there's a potential for them to play up the hick town where everybody's like um, a little weird. You see a scene like that in the convenience store in the sequel where, I, where for a little bit, like you got the weird guy and this and that. And they interview Doomed. like, a, yeah, they interview a guy who is just an older guy. He's probably in his fifties or so. And he's just kind of matter of factly telling him about the witch. And he looks like a guy who probably just 
gets up, goes to work probably in, in and around D.C., comes home every night. So he's just, you know, your average Joe type. Um, Mary Brown, Mary Brown just looks like, you know, pardon the phrase, she looks like kind of like poor white trash that is around and she's a little off kilter. She's holding the Bible the whole time. But even then, but they then make a comment, I think, later on after they had talked to her about how, yeah, she also told us about this, this, and this. So she's just kind of like out there. And the one of the, one of my favorite bits in Burkittsville is they're interviewing the mom who's holding the young baby, the kid, and the kid's a little scared, but she's telling it. But again, she's like your typical mom. Yeah, of that time period. Not only that, I don't know if you caught this and go back and watch it. At one point during that interview, the kid picks his nose and eats it. <laughs> the <laughs> which I was like, okay, what kid. Me. <laughs> is that the directors well in addition to torture things that you would have done to you if you're like in the air force uh, they just wake you up in the middle of the night and just you know it's like basically psychological torture what directors into the town and to get realistic um reactions from so there were people that knew what was going on and people that didn't so it's it felt i think that's why it felt real is that the people that their plants you know obviously once you see the film you're like but it just feels totally natural mm-hmm. and it's it, i for a couple years there at dragon con uh on saturday nights at like out at like midnight, uh, there on the uh, the paranormal track, they would have, and some of these were really effective. So the whole first part of it, even I'm really getting to know these characters, I'm just like kind of immersing myself into the, you know, the story that they're telling. It cuts between these very natural conversations in color. But then it gets into black and white, and Heather is this complete douchebag. Yes. and It's just brilliant. The, the coffin rock scene is perfect <laughs> for it, because she's she's sitting on a rock by the creek, reading from a book, and very sincerely, but at the same time, like, you kind of expect it. A, her character has been established that that's totally natural for her to do, and B... She's such an earnest little college student. It's it's just it 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 works so well, and it, it it's cheesy, but it's like you know, yeah, this is a student film. <laughs> but so serious, and she's reading, uh-huh. and she lowers the timber of her voice a little, and it's just I I just love it. And cutting from the color was a really great way to keep me off balanced. Uh, you know, me as in. Uh, the royal we, I guess yeah, I should yeah, yeah. say, it keeps it, it keeps us off balance because mm-hmm. you know you're going from shaky cam, and that's another thing. Cinema Sin says, well, you get all the shaky cam. Look, shaky cam wasn't a thing in 1999. Okay, no, that was that actually it was it was different enough that at the time I didn't even notice what was different about it. I mean, well, yeah, cam thing or even in action films, which thankfully yeah. seems to be working its way out of scenes and such you know that wasn't something that you saw back then 
it's just there's so much crap that this film gets that I feel is completely undeserved. It's that it's that sort of like rather ignorant. Oh, this is stupid type of thing, and that was just the backlash against the movie. And I don't know if those people had thought they were duped or they just thought they were smarter than the movie or they expected something else. I want to say a number of people felt jilted because they never saw a monster. I, I honestly don't know. I really don't want to get into the hatred, the hate against this film because I just really, really like it. But I do want and... to mention that, though, is that the number one criticism I heard from assholes was <laughs> that so the, that's not the effing point. Yeah, that's the thing. It's, it's purposely ambiguous at the end because you can speculate as to what actually killed those two. Because you could posit a theory that it was Josh. Exactly. But you don't have any proof aside from the fact that Josh disappears. But, like, they get into the woods, they're lost, Josh snaps. I mean, this isn't, it is not out of the realm of possibility that people in their early, you know, late teens and early 20s start managing schizophrenic uh, and having that sort of, you know, personality disorder. Yeah, well, that and, um, there's something about, like, you know, trying to keep the realism, trying to keep the suspension of disbelief. And found footage is, like, one of those things that um, some found footage films go out of their way to show you how the cameras work. Yeah. So that in the back of your mind, like, oh, well, I know how they're getting this footage. And then over time, like, some of it, like, like I think I didn't see the last Paranormal Activity movie, but I think, like, the conceit was that the camera could see the supernatural. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? This, like I said, they had they had swiped the one good camera from the college mm-hmm. so that was one thing and like i said the other camera the one that mike's holding that has most of the shaky cam footage is a camcorder that one of them could have bought at best buy with money from their job yeah you know it was like it was it was a home camcorder everybody a lot of people in the 90s had those camcorders so the footage is shot there's no soundtrack um, the, in fact, at one point, there's a you hear a plane fly overhead. So I'm like, okay, so they're using the they're just using the scene as it is. But granted, it was a sixty thousand dollar budget, but um, you know, so that provides the realism. And they establish early on, like Heather's kind of a douche, and that she's so determined to get everything in the shot. And actually, one of my favorite moments is where he Josh is like yelling at her, yeah. and she's crying in camera, like, "What's your motivation? What's your motivation?" And it's established pretty well that she was determined to get everything and she kept filming even when they were lost only because it was almost her coping mechanism. Like she could, I think one of them even acknowledged she can detach herself from things if she's behind a camera. And then later on at night, you see at one point, one of them has a flashlight, but it's a small flashlight and they're using the cameras at some certain points, especially in the night filming as flashlights because mm-hmm. the cameras have lights on them that actually emit a fair amount of light that they can see in the woods. And they don't have to explain it to you. You just see it, and it makes total sense. Whereas other movies of this genre seem to go out of their way to explain to you, you know, yeah, why they have such good footage of things. And I appreciate that about this movie. I appreciated a lot of this movie on a filmmaking and character development level, this time around than I did in 1999 when I first saw it. Saw it. Probably because I wasn't as scared out of my mind watching it this time. Yeah, you can, you can be, you're a little more detached because you're in your house and you're, mm-hmm. and, and you, you know, it, maybe it's the middle of the day 
and it's it's yeah. not as scary. I mean, I, when Rachel and I went to see it, like I said, it was the middle of the afternoon, so we go out to the the early August Georgia summer heat. So you know, <laughs> it's, it's very detached from the cold, damp, you know, Maryland woods. Uh, yeah. which for whatever reason, when we saw it, <laughs> one of my favorite memories of coming back to my friend Eric's place after seeing the film is my friend Andy disappeared for a little bit because he was quasi-dating this girl, and she broke up with him that night, and we didn't know that, and we had gone to the back of Eric's place and got a bunch of sticks and put it in his bed like the Blair Witch. <laughs> And he comes home after getting dumped by his girlfriend, and that's in his bed. We were assholes. Um. Oh, we we watched. Have you ever seen the movie Copycat with Sigourney Weaver and Harry Connick Jr.? Uh, no, actually, I've never seen that. Though. It's actually. It's actually really good. Um, we watched it one night in my dorm room. My friend, my friend's girlfriend was freaking out. And, like we all started fucking with her after that. And he even he did. He got into so much trouble. Uh, but anyway, uh, one of the scenes that I really loved watching this time around was when Mike admits that he chucked the map in the creek. yeah because he's just giggling. Yeah, and the way she freaks out is so genuine. Like you, she actually sounds like, like she's not acting. Mm-hmm. And on some level she is, she isn't, but it's just like, holy shit. Like I've, I can picture a girl yelling like that. I've seen girls yell like that. Yeah. In a way that is totally not staged. You know, like blowing out the mic and stuff like that. Because, like, you know, you know, and and she just uh, like, and and it like made me a little tense even watching it twenty almost twenty. And years Josh later. wants to kick his ass, and it's just it's oh, just yeah. this whole thing because he's what really lends and where you could go to either it's just a, a bunch of people that got lost in the woods and went crazy, or there's something supernatural going on. Is he can't explain why he did it. Mm-hmm. So on one level. You know, you could have, like, the bullshit, um, like, horror movie trope of him, like, sitting by the creek, and you hear, like, voices, like, in- inaudible, but you, yeah. you know that they're saying something, and he kind of looks up, and he's like, but I can't, this is how we're going to get home, and okay, I'll just, okay, or, you know, and, and you could even play that where it's all in his head. Uh, you know, I, I think... I think there is a large group of people out there that do not like ambiguity in the entertainment that they go see. They want uh-huh. everything spoon-fed to them. And I'm not saying that as a, as a snobby, like, oh, I'm so much better. I think it's just, in general, people don't like don't want ambiguity in their life, so they don't want it in their entertainment. Whereas I think when you, if you're doing it right, it can make the movie better. The whole, you know, once they get lost, it's scary, but it's scary. You know, like the, the, Heather has the line, who gets lost in America anymore? Yeah. And yeah. I'm sorry, you can get lost in America really freaking easy. And it's 2017, yeah, but, but, <laughs> but she's got a, she has a great, great point. And, um, I remember talking to somebody, uh, I don't remember who I was having the conversation with, but I pointed out that 1994 was a great year to set this mm-hmm. in. 
because nobody had a cell phone. Uh-huh. At it maybe you know, at best one of them might have had a beeper, but you, beeper wasn't a two way method of communication. So unless somebody knew they were out there, there's no way for them, you know. And um, so there's that contrivance is taken away. Um, by the way, I just just I noticed the subtleties in the wardrobe, and it's not a very expensive movie, but it did they did this did look like 1994. Oh yeah. As opposed to the 1998, and there's like, and, and it's shit like like Heather, the shirt Heather's wearing, and the high waisted jeans, so much flannel, right? At, yeah, and the flannel. This is right out of things I would see people wearing on the regular in high school. So, the, I appreciate that. But the way the group dynamic breaks down is one thing that I think is natural. I also like the fact that, um, uh, I, I read about how the filmmakers came up with the idea for the stick figures because they just found stuff that was available in the mm-hmm. woods. So it wasn't anything, you know, so it was just very easy for them to put it up. But then the the rustling of the tent, the screaming in the background, the little oh. noises that were really, but they're really, really subtle in the back. And the fact that Josh just disappears and we don't see it happen. There's no jump scare scene of him being dragged away or something going flying or something like that. It's all stuff that's like, what the hell is happening around it? And it's getting worse and worse and worse. But at the same time, like I think it's scarier the fact that he's just gone yeah. as opposed to being it dragged didn't away. Wake like, them just like up that he left. Yes, exactly. And you're just like, holy shit. And then it just kind of disintegrates from there. And, um, I like the fact that the, the, they kept the house all the way, the secret all the way mm-hmm. to the end. Yeah. There was, you know, the only thing, the only thing that you had to pay attention to at the beginning of the movie to get the ending was the thing about Rustin Parr with the kids in the yeah. corner. But again, it wasn't, it wasn't done in a way that telegraphed the ending. It was just part of the legend. And they get, and when, and, but when they find that house, it is legitimately scary. It was legitimately scary in the theater for me. Like, where the hell did that come from? Just the idea that this house erupts from the ground almost. Yeah, they just it's just there. And he does the stupid thing of going in, but but again, we've established up to this point that they're so they're so lost. They're so freaking out, they're so panicky that they would make stupid decisions, especially since he thinks he hears him inside yeah. of the house and she's like, Where are you going? And she goes in there with him because she doesn't want to get separated. Because, like, he starts running ahead of her, and she's like, would you wait up? Like, you know, and then, and then, you know, and we don't see anything yeah. of, and that's what I love. I love that we don't see anything at the end of the movie. Yeah, it's just, you know, the, the, the how it should have ended people, like, had it that the camera broke, and they couldn't <laughs> film what they wanted to film, which I thought was really funny. But I love that, they, I mean, it's this house, and I'm sorry, I'm 41 years old at this point. I would not go into that house if I just found it in the woods. <laughs> you know, F you. I mean, just, and all the handprints on the wall and all the little things. And just, you know, you see Mike go down and you see, you know, and, and the camera goes dead. And then it cuts to her. But you hear her screaming on his camera and then on her camera. So on a technical mm-hmm. level, it's really throwing you off. She goes down the steps, and I, that shot of him standing in the corner scared the living crap out of me. Yeah, it. it I, I 
would close my eyes for the rest of the night afterward and I would see it. It was like a whole, like this, and I didn't need any more than that, which is why I always got annoyed at people who thought it wasn't scary. I'm like, are you kidding me? It was, it freaked the hell out of me. I mean, you're, you're, you're from, you're seeing the camera, you're seeing Heather's perspective. So you're not seeing Heather running down the stairs. You're seeing her going down the stairs as if you're going down the stairs. And the last thing you mm-hmm. see is like, why the hell is he? And then nothing. And yeah. then there's like this low ambient music during the end credits. Mm-hmm. And it's just like the, the theater, there was no clapping. There was nothing the first time I saw it. Yeah. The second time I saw it, douche bro was just like, that's it. <sighs> that's just. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> but I, 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 but the funny thing was, is I didn't see it again. I saw it. Um, I, I, well, I bought the video. I watched the video. It was still pretty scary. There's a diminishing return on the scariness of the ending because you know the ending's coming, but you expect that from any horror movie. But I think on that level, and the, you know, and I didn't get a chance to watch it before this, but it's pretty much indelible in my mind. Um, yeah. the last time I saw it, it was on Netflix. I watched it like a morning where I got up before Rachel did and I had the day off and I really appreciated it on a filmmaking level. And I think mm-hmm. the more you watch it after the fact, the more you start noticing the little tricks and everything that they're doing and why it's so effective. I mean, the idea that these guys tortured the three leads and then the two <laughs> yeah, I, know. I mean it, it's just it, it it's almost like did they need to go like like go to a rest home for like a week or two after all of this was over do they suffer from ptsd i mean when you have sleep deprivation mixed with psychological warfare i just like wow talk about commitment to your art <laughs> But I got to say, the sleep deprivation, the psychological warfare, the anxiety and the panic in the climax of the movie allow it to make mm-hmm. total sense that they both go into the house. Yes. Because people make I – mean, I know I'm repeating that Geico commercial that was running for a while. People make stupid decisions in horror yes. movies. This was not a conscious decision. It was this sort of like – you know, like I'm – following this and it, it like i said it's just it's such a well and and they they barely stop when they're running through the house so you're getting bits and pieces of it and you have to look closely to see what's there and there's like the the handprints that you're just like well fuck what is that and then the the weird runic markings and things like that and it's just but it's it's in random places and it's it's not clear and you know it's not like red rum's written on the door or anything but and then you have the basement scene, and you're just like, and and it just it builds up terror, but it builds up terror in a way where you um, it, it trusts you mm-hmm. with it, as opposed to some other more conventional horror movies where, for instance, the score is going to cue you as to when to be scared. exactly, and that can work, but when done badly, it's it's like you're being spoon fed stuff. Like, you know, a good example would be the original A Nightmare on Elm Street from 1984 compared to the fifth film. 
yeah. where the you know the appliances are a little more sophisticated and you know they're they're doing a little bit more with the special effects and in the first film they just used a shorter guy at the mouth of the alleyway in that one sequence to make it seem like he's far away when he's really not so it's yeah. it's it's like when you do the it's the economy of the special effects and it's the economy i'm i'm of the opinion it's the jaws effect that's what i was trying to think i was just about to mention it it's it's the it's we couldn't get the shark to work so let's not show yeah, the shark so then it's scarier because you don't see it if if yeah. if at the end of the film the last shot would have been a shot of a witch the whole thing would have been ruined exactly just just completely exactly. and utterly ruined like it, you don't need a monster in the monster film we've said this about comic panels before uh-huh. too that there are some comic panels or some scenes in comic books that are more brutal because your brain is filling in the exactly. blanks because like the code wouldn't approve you know if there was a decapitation or something the co- comics code wouldn't approve it or whatever or DC and Marvel edited it out but your mind fills in the blank for you and I think that's what happens here too and and you're also left with that ambiguity of of did this legend actually exist and like we said did Josh crack and kill both of them and and you don't need an answer yeah i mean if this is the type of thing this film is designed for you to sit around either that night or years later with your friends at a diner and just have a conversation about it and everyone's throwing out theories and stuff that's you know it's like yeah. kind of what we're doing right now really <laughs> yeah you know I, i'd like a cup of coffee and a piece of apple pie with cheese melted on it you know at the moment but you know i'll just yeah. I'll, I'll deal but it's just it's it, it's just one of those things where i i think that the detractors of this movie weren't it's it's not a lack of understanding uh because there's not a whole lot to understand about the film <laughs> you know no no it's it's not a complex film it's it's not complex in the way that you you know you're not going to dissect it like the shining yeah it's you're you're not going to have a you know tent 42 documentary about this thing where they talk about how really what this was all about was that Kubrick faked the moon landing um yeah. or something like that I watched yeah that's that's a wacky damn documentary so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's one of those things where it's not a matter of the audience not being intelligent it's just the matter of the audience being into what is being laid down and if you're not into it it's not going to speak to you in the way it obviously spoke to you and I, you know, and and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just when you start criticizing it on a level that basically you're saying it sucked because you didn't like it because you're not into it is basically taking away, you know, the people that are into it. I just think that there is something, if you're into horror films, ghost stories, you'll probably appreciate this film a lot more than if you're not, basically. Yeah. And um, this can segue into, we're going to talk a little bit about the sequels. Now, I know that you haven't seen uh, the third one. I'm actually going to talk about that one really, really briefly. But uh, 
because it's not really worth watching. But um, <laughs> last year, it really isn't. I think it was either 2015 or 2016. I think it was 2016. Uh, the movie Blair Witch came out, and it's the third in ostensibly a, quote, series of Blair Witch films. Um, it had been made under a fake title called The Woods, and it wasn't until a panel at San Diego Comic-Con when they showed the sizzle reel trailer or whatever that they actually revealed that this movie was a third Blair Witch mm-hmm. movie. It's a found footage film that is essentially, and and before we were on air, I, I I basically said it's the Highland, it's Highlander, the Final Dimension, where it is essentially a rehash of the entire first film, except the conceit is that the the main character who drags his friends along, um, his girlfriend's a documentary filmmaker, and he's looking, he's Heather Donahue's younger brother, and he's looking for her, and they go into the woods, and weird things happen. But here's the thing. There's a couple of things. I mentioned how in some found footage movies they go out of their way to show you the equipment. This is one of them. It's practically Q showing James Bond all the stuff he has. <laughs> they've got because they've got Bluetooth cameras that they wear in their ears, so that that act like work almost like a GoPro, where like you know they they get the point of view shot without having to hold up a camera. They have a drone. They have so it's like oh here's all the stuff they set cameras up all over their um all over their little campsite area which to be fair they did in in Book of Shadows as well but the, there's a billion jump scares the cast is like WBCW casting um they get they hook up with a guy who like the conceit is that they found a they found a video on the internet that supposedly is like Blair Witch footage that was recently found and they find the guy who's right outside of Burkesville who is um the guy who had posted on the internet and um you know, so he and his girlfriend go with them, but they're kind of shady. Are they fucking with them and that sort of thing, which which they never did in the first one. None of the locals go with them into the woods. None of them warn them away from anything. This is another thing I liked about the first one. And it's just like by the end of it, I'm like, are you and there there are shots of a monster. They're very brief here and there, kind of like out of um, the, the Spanish movie Wreck, which was remade as the movie Quarantine it's like a kind of zombie-ish movie and it's just I'm sitting there like I'm sitting there watching this movie the other day there are certain scenes where I'm like okay this is pretty well done but for the most part I'm like it's everything that I hate about this genre now it's really really played out how many jump scares do we need and clearly the people who made this movie saw the first one thought it was stupid and they decided to make the movie they thought the way it should be made so don't see Blair Witch. <laughs> I, I'm going to at some point it's just so, because I'm, I'm yeah. interested in the, you know, it's it's, it's basically like, yeah. you know, I, I, <laughs> I am invested enough in, in the franchise that if it pops up on Netflix and Rachel's asleep on the couch. But oddly enough, I'm so, a really big fan of the sequel. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about the sequel really, really briefly. This because the, the main the main episode the main part of the show is is obviously um, Blair Witch uh, the Blair Witch Project. But there was um, a sequel that was rushed into into production, much to the director's chagrin. They did not want to do a sequel right away. They they had planned on one, or they had they had ideas for some, but Artisan, seeing money, <laughs> to be made, uh, got Joe. I think his last name is Berlinger. 
who this is his only feature film. He's a documentary filmmaker. His most famous film, it was a film called My Brother's Keeper, as well as uh, his biggest claim to fame in terms of documentaries films was the Paradise Lost series Ooh, of films. Good stuff there. Which, yeah, which is a, I believe about the West Memphis three of them. It's it's like a it's like it's it's presented as a quote dramatization of events that happened outside of Brookinsville, Maryland. That were almost like where they treated the Blair Witch Project as a film. So it's a film within a film, and the the, the basic plot is that uh, this one kid is this one guy offers a Blair Witch tour. Mm-hmm. So they're they're making this commentary on like the phenomenon of the movie, which I thought was actually pretty clever. Um, and he picks up these this this couple who was who was writing a book, and the this a, a guy and his girlfriend. The girlfriend's actually about six weeks pregnant. Um, this girl named Erica, who is a Wiccan, and goes out of her way to explain everything about that in a way that's almost irritating at times. Basically, the Wiccan that uh, is new to the path, so she's really mm-hmm. excited. Yeah, and spends the movie half naked. Yeah, she is. Uh, and then. My my, I think my favorite character in the entire movie, Kim Director, playing this goth chick who's just not like I want to be a, be a vampire. She just wants to dress in black and like just be a bitch. <laughs> Watching, and I love her. Yeah, character. Rachel and I saw this in the theater, and uh, I was talking about decided that the movie wanted wanted us to be attracted to. The... We're all attracted to the goth chick. <laughs> Yeah, and um, so they spend the night in the woods. Uh, at you know, they drink around the campfire, or whatever. They spend it in the in the ruins of Rustin Parr's house. In fact, at one point, another tour group comes across them. They they have they exchange words. They tell the group to go up to Coffin Rock, and then um, they wake up the next morning. All of the research is like there's paper flying everywhere, shreds of paper flying everywhere, and all it's all the research from the stuff. And none of them remember anything from the night before. They had taped everything, but there's this huge gap in the tapes, and they go back to. Um, the guy's house, which is not a house, but it's like an old broom factory that he bought for a dollar or something. So it's really creepy. And they start turning on each other and they're seeing things and are they being haunted? And it's a more conventional horror movie um, with some really, really good moments. But in, I, I actually didn't really like it when, when I first saw it, I saw it on video, but then when I, I watched it again the other day and um, I know that, uh, and doing some research, I know that um, there are scenes that were added in post that the director did not want added. Uh, for instance, there's a number of shots of, I don't know why I'm blanking on the character's name, the, the, the tour guide guy in an asylum that the directors put it that the, that the that the studio was meddled with and some of the more drunken orgy scenes because at the end of the movie you see that like they're responsible for all like they're responsible for like brutally murdering that the entire other tour group because apparently like the one woman like was possessed by the witch and led them in a satanic orgy and then they went off and like disemboweled all these people and then they're all responsible for for killing a bunch of people and 
they're all being interrogated and and it like I said it in my mind it's very uneven there's some really really great stuff in there and there's some stuff in there I'm like this is really just ridiculous my favorite thing about this film right now is that if you ever watched burn notice uh the main guy from burn notice is the the one that's leading the tour group in here uh you mm. mentioned before we started recording that it's very much of its time uh yes. and 2000 2001 and it is very much of its time both you know this had a soundtrack what i appreciate about this movie is yes, it was rushed into production. Yes, it was an ill-conceived sequel. But I think with if you look at it in terms of the movies themselves, Blair Witch is a found footage movie, and Book of Shadows is a reaction to it. So there's found hmm. footage material in it, but it's more of a conventional story, and it kind of keeps you guessing towards the until the end. And then everything just kind of falls apart because ultimately they are guilty of what happened, even though they were all quote unquote possessed by this. Uh, I just, and, and there's, there's some really self-aware moments. Like there's a, there's a scene where the redheads like, do you think Mike and Heather did it at one point? Uh, which will always make me laugh because I actually posed that very question the night we saw it. I was like, do you think they had sex? My friends are like, you just haven't gotten laid in a while. That's why it's on your mind. I'm like, no, no, that's uh, to me. It's a legitimate question, but okay. If you guys want to be jackasses, that's fine. But it's just, I like it. I, 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 you know, years ago, Chris Honeywell and I talked about it uh, on an episode of two true freaks. So this might be around 2010 ish uh, Mm. where we were both kind of defending the film. And, you know, I'm not like one of these people that feels like a movie that gets panned needs me to be its champion. But I think, I think it's worth watching at least as a relic of this time period (laughs) because the music and everything, it's like a time capsule really uh, to me at this point. It really is. Cause, cause, like, um, there, especially Eric, Eric has the witch, the Wiccan girl, the redhead. Uh, Kim is the the goth chick, and they're both right out of like a hot topic yeah. <laughs> from around the time. And and you're right, the soundtrack's all that sort of new metal, um, you know, very, very heavy stuff. And uh, there, like I said, there's some legitimately like really really good scenes. Or, or jump, not necessarily jump scares, but jump cuts to various things that that work really well. Like at one point, I know he goes into the to the one room and um, and she's sitting, Kim's sitting there in, in a chair, and it looks like she's eating an owl. And then he like he shakes his head, looks at her, and she's like eating fried chicken out of a yeah, like this old ass fried chicken box. Or the the scene where like. Um, the the one guy the main the, the the researcher guy and uh, Erica seem to be having sex and then they just jump they just cut back to the two of them ha- after that and it's no they're sitting at a table that like they're sitting at like the Wayne Manor table in Batman where they're like you know twenty feet away from each other and it's just like those little things that like you know show that like in their heads something is like really really weird and wrong. Um, I personally love the scene where it's revealed through security camera footage that Kim like gutted that woman's throat with a nail yeah. file. I love that scene. Yeah, 
because because the storekeeper was such the stereotypical go away which people we don't want you here like are you really gonna have these freaking hick redneck type of characters you know and and i can totally understand why berlinger was upset with them including like the insane asylum scenes because he thought it took away the ambi- some ambiguity that he was looking for in the movie and it made it a little too spot on and that's where i thought it was like really of its time because it was definitely the way it's lit and you know how it's this this cliche old dirty asylum type of place even the hospital where they take the one uh, tristan the the one woman after she has the the miscarriage looks like your typical cliche horror movie dirty old hospital that doesn't technically exist anymore. Sci-Fi Channel did do a special for this one like it did for the first one. Uh, It wasn't as good, but there's one thing about that special that amuses the crap out of me, and I think it was something that was actually in the film too, is that somebody's interviewing Jeffrey Donovan's character. And these people, like you hear a car honk, and he starts talking to somebody randomly off camera. Yes. And I thought, that is so authentic. That is somebody yes. like just completely losing track of what's going on. And I loved it because he sold it so well. Yeah, he's like, hey, Cheryl, or whatever. <laughs> it was just, yeah. I, that was a great, yeah, that was a great scene. And um, I like the fact that, that they show his website and like all the little things like that. It just, it, it okay. sold me of its being of its time too. The, the the Times New Roman website with the bright green. It's you know. like you want you want you want to uh, binge watch this and Freaky Links with Ethan Embry <laughs> from Fox in two thousand. Oh, freaky yeah, links. Freaky Links. If you don't remember Freaky Links, folks, uh, Chiller every once in a while shows it. It's uh, it's it's a show that has not aged well. By the way, I will yeah. tell you that, especially with the technology they use for the internet. <laughs> <laughs> it, but but book of shadows it, when it's making its commentary on copycat type of murders or it's making its commentary on this is this pop, pop culture phenomenon like you said reacting to the first yeah. movie it actually is pretty smart um the uh the i i i don't know if they if they added the orgy scene in in post the way that to meddle with the film or not. I, I think that was, there were a couple of bits and pieces of the drunkenness and stuff that, that were edited to make it a little more clear as to what was going on. Um, but I did like the whole aspect of how the cameras actually revealed everything. Mm-hmm. That was the truth, especially at the end where, where he pushes his girlfriend off the ledge and she snaps her neck with the news. Whereas in, quote reality in the movie at least as we were seeing she was supposedly possessed by the witch yeah like like the the camera shows like them being menacing and her being scared if i'm remembering it correctly and 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 what they see the here's the thing doing a sequel to the blair witch project is is just kind of a stupid idea from the beginning with because it's something that exists within itself it's, yeah, it's a complete it's movie. It's a complete movie. You don't need a sequel. So the only what are you going to do? Another group of people go into the woods? One, you've blown all of the suspense of that. Because you know something's mm-hmm. there. So it's not something that's unfolding. 
it's just seeing the same thing done maybe just a little bit differently with different character dynamics. Maybe this time it's a guy leading the, the group and all that. Yeah. So what do you do? Well, you know, with the Friday the 13th films, there is very little difference between the first one and the second one in terms of the characters and what happens. The big twist in the first one is it turns out it's Pamela Voorhees, where in the second one it actually is Jason. But at the same time, it's a group of young kids. They're, they're, they're all in their early 20s. They're doing stuff they're not supposed to, and they're getting killed. So when you see the second one, you're just seeing kind of the same thing but different. Go to the Nightmare on Elm Street films, where the sequel was 180 degrees away from what the first film did. Now, uh, Friday the 13th, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is a very flawed movie in that it doesn't really pay attention to the rules that were set up in the first one. But I appreciate it that it tried something different. And that's why I like Book of Shadows. Because it mm-hmm. tried something different. It didn't do Blair Witch over again. It was like a metatextual reaction to Blair Witch done, if it had another couple of script polishes, you know, and maybe they took a little more time with it. I think the main reason it it, it, it is flawed is that it was so rushed into production. Yeah, because the performances by and large are actually really mm-hmm. good. I think the I think the screaming and hollering by the one guy in the uh, interrogation when he's like somebody messed with the tape. I think I'm like that's a you know yeah you mess with the tape because you ate it because you've been eating the scenery. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, God. But at the same time, like um, it, the Erica, the witch character, I, I'm, I'm glad you were able to define it because it's, I was trying to figure out a way to not sound condescending as a way, but it's just like she, it, they could have very gone down, very well gone down the road of making fun of that person. Yeah. But like, I think they, I think they did it with an, you know, like with an subtlety. And then with Kim, instead of making her dark and mysterious or something, she's like, I said, she's just a straight up bitch. And I'm like, that is a great way to do the goth chick. Yeah. She, she's not like, I'm so depressed. She just doesn't like people. And I kind of, it's kind of like one of the reasons why I was attracted to her as a character is I'm like, wow, she's, she's kind of interesting. She's different. And you know, my wife is pagan. Um, Mm-hmm. So when we saw this film, especially around the time we saw it, you know, she was very sensitive to how witches are portrayed in popular culture, because a yeah. lot of the time it's really it's either completely wrong or it's titillating for the sake of being titillating or whatever. So there was this. But I have if you if you are a, a student of human behavior I don't care if it's Wicca. I don't care if it's Judaism or Kabbalah, to, to use a good example of that. Or if you're mm. born again, a lot of people go through that period of time where because they are discovering it and it is so new to them and so much a part of them, that that is their entire personality. 
And that's oh, yeah. what she kind of struck me as, as somebody that's just probably newer to the path, so to speak, uh, than mm-hmm. being, you know, probably presenting herself as a little more experienced. I'm probably projecting too much onto this character. No, no, but but I, I felt that way too, and I, and I felt it was shown in a way that wasn't intending to make fun or ridicule, make fun of ridicule her. Yeah. Or, or, or they, but whereas with Kim, the, the first time you see Kim, she's laying on a grave, smoking a cigarette, and they totally just they they they're going. They want you to think that she's the mysterious goth girl who communicates with the dead and she's like a fucking tired. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's just I love like from the moment and I and I really caught it this time around. I love for the moment where she's introduced they're like, oh they're kind of turning that trope on its ear. And that's where I appreciated the movie. I appreciated the movie for that because they did they did try to they they had a little fun with those the different types of characters. You know, the 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 acad- the, the starving academics, you know, um the the hicks of the town, the the this kid who like everybody hates, but he's you know Jeffrey Donovan's character is like making money off the the thing, but at the same time they did it in a way that they weren't ridiculing these type of people. They were just, they were just having a little bit of fun with the uh, stereotypes. Yeah, and and they fleshed out the characters pretty well. And actually. I actually kind of like Jeffrey Donovan's character and the setup that he has is that this is his existence. You know, you know he lives in this. Mm-hmm. He lives in like you said this abandoned factory that he's kind of retrofitted to be a house. And he's got all of this camera equipment and you realize that every cent that he makes off of taking rubes out to, you know, see the witch and stuff like that. Or, or fencing stolen. Yeah. Cause he's got all, he talked about eBay. That was, that was funny. Cause he was, he has all these stereos and shit. He's like, are you just stealing these? Like, yeah, I'm buying, I'm selling them on eBay. (laughs) So it's just like, God, you know what that means? That means somebody had to send him a money order, and he had to wait for that to come in the mail, and then he would go to the post office and mail it out because that's how eBay worked back then. Mm-hmm. Whereas nowadays, three clicks and you know, you're <laughs> two minutes later, your item has shipped. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So maybe I've been selling stuff on eBay lately, but no, I was going to say I. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, but it's just, for me, this is, it, it's a flawed, it's a noble failure. That's mm-hmm. how I'm going to, that's how I'm going to frame it. It's, it's, it's something that didn't quite succeed, but I think it tried hard enough that I kind of want to root for it as an underdog of a film. I would say that as much of its time as it is, because it's very much of its time. It's actually aged surprisingly well compared to other shitty horror movies from the late 90s and early 2000s. You know, your Anaconda or something like that, which is just, or like these monster movies that were just awful and and are are now on the level of a Sharknado. Like, you watch them to so that you could do your own, like, you know, Mystery Science Theater 3000 riff tracks thing with them. But this, believe it or not, like I said... I was I, I knew what year I was watching, but at the same time, like you know, this this it holds up a lot better than I thought it would for for a sequel that was not very well regarded, but did make a fair amount of money. Um, it had like a five million dollar budget. It only made about twenty three 
it made it made a decent amount, but it was kind of a disappointment compared to the first one, obviously. Um, and the first one, just to just to kind of wrap us up here, the Blair Witch Project. You know, I'm looking at it. This is it's nineteen it's twenty seventeen when we're recording this, and it's nineteen. This is nineteen ninety nine. This is almost twenty years later, and it still holds up as a genuinely good horror movie. Um, in a way that others from this genre aren't going to be able to 10, 15 years down the road. Yeah, I think because it is, it is set specifically in 1994, and it mm-hmm. was found a year later, and you're seeing it now four years later, whether it's four years later or 14 years later or 20 years later, you're still, because it's kind of a period piece, it ages incredibly well. And to me, it's just part of this really weird time in my life because about two weeks after this is when I met Rachel. So, so, and, and, and my life was forever changed after that because obviously, you know, we got married and we're still together to this day. So it's like this, this last gasp of me being single, even though Rachel and I didn't get married to 2003, we were pretty much married from the moment we started dating. Um, so to me, it's just like this representation of this time period where like, you could buy into a film like this because it's just you and your friends all hanging out and going to see this film and getting scared by it. And I think you know, horror films are like roller coasters. You go on it to get scared and to get that little adrenaline rush. And yeah. this film d- did that so incredibly well that even though I know all of the secrets of the Blair Witch, so to speak, I can still watch this film and just appreciate it as what it is. So I, I, I am still a huge fan of this movie. Yeah. And, and I'm, I, I've always been a fan of this movie. This was the first time I've watched this movie in a number of years. And I'm glad to almost have like rediscovered it. Yeah, way. it's it, um, it's it's like you if you leave it alone for a number of years, and then come back to mm-hmm. it, it's just like you know, like some friends you want to hang out with for years, some every once in a while you just want to meet up and have a you know night out and then not talk to them for like five or six years, <laughs> so you can appreciate uh, them for what they are. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so uh. Before before I let you go, uh, why don't you tell everybody where we can uh, find you on on the interwebs? Well, it, it, it's actually a lot easier these days because by the time this actually comes out, uh, the Fortress of Bailytude Podcasting Network will be an official thing. Uh, if you go to fortressofbailytude.com, you can find a number of podcasts that I do, like Beast Long Box from Crisis to Crisis. Overlooked Dark Knight that I do with Andy Leyland, mm-hmm. uh, which has turned into a really fun little Batman show. Uh, and hope it's a really good Batman <laughs> show. Well, I appreciate that. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Um, you know what the miracle of that show is? Andy and I get together, and it's only an hour long, and we discuss two comics in one hour. Yeah. That's that's flipping amazing for us. Uh, considering we spent like five hours on Batman 400 alone at one point, but uh, and it's it all comes back to Superman. Hopefully, the one show that had been delayed that hopefully will be out by this 
is uh, Married with Comics, which uh, Rachel and I want to do together. But every time we go to do it, something comes up. So I don't know if the show is cur- <laughs> just every once in a while we think of doing it. And that dude from Friday the 13th part three comes up. It's like, you're all doomed. doomed. <laughs> so, uh, but no, uh, but yeah, fortress of com, easiest place to find my stuff. It's either that or it's Carrie White's mom. <laughs> They're all going to laugh. We're all going to laugh at you. <laughs> all right. Um, I will be back next month with, something i haven't exactly figured out what it is but until then uh be sure to go to the blog check out the show notes for this i will provide a link to that uh that uh curse of the blair witch special which uh credits on mike here found he found a link to it uh and sent it my way because the only copy i have is on vhs so i will put a link to that in the show notes so you guys can watch in case you you want to look back on something from 1999 and uh, until then, uh, thanks for listening and take care. And we're out. Um, the funniest yeah. thing about that video is that it's only one channel for the sound. Yeah. So yeah. It, it does okay. feel like a VHS tape from 1999. It's...